Blessed is our God always, both now and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Good evening, my uh, beloved children. I see we have a full house here tonight, standing room only. Looks like a lot of you must be interested in marriage, and that's good. Now, I'm sure if the topic was about monasticism, half of your parents would probably be here with shotguns, and I would probably end up being lynched. Anyway, during the last session, we began to talk about the service of betrothal. We covered some of the petitions of the deacon asking God to bless the betrothed with good children, perfect love, peaceful coexistence, and God's protection. Today, we will look into another petition that prays for harmony and perfect trust that he may bless them in harmony and perfect trust. Let us pray to the Lord. We have two petitions here, oneness or harmony and steadfastness of faith. And the same petition is repeated twice. Now, one of the greatest problems in today's marriages is the lack of oneness and harmony. It is very rare today to meet or find a couple with perfect harmony. What prevails in today's homes is all kinds of emotional and psychological warfare, arguments, frictions, misunderstandings, battles, confrontations, and so on. These things do not sprout because people enjoy this type of thing uh, in their home or marriages but because we fail to learn the art of living harmoniously with our neighbor. Marriage is a great art, my beloved children, and I believe that if someone wants to live happily, he needs to learn to develop this technique, or the techniques rather, that will cultivate harmonious living with the other person. One of the keys is not to demand from the other person to conform to our wishes, but we must make the necessary adjustments to accommodate our neighbor or our spouse. Paradoxically, marriage and monasticism are very much alike. I believe that a good monk would also make a very good family man, and a good family man has all the potential to become a very good monk. We mentioned many times before that the purpose of marriage is not different than the purpose of monasticism. The purpose is to heal our fallen nature and unite with Christ. There's a very important adage from the Yerondikon, the verses or the adages of the elders that says, if you wish to live at a synobitic monastery, at a monastic community with many monks, check your own will at the door. Before you enter the gate, abandon all your opinions, your knowledge, your wants, and so on. By entering the monastery, you ought to vow ob obedience you must give up your own will, deny your likes and dislikes, your past convictions and opinions, deny it all, 
and enter the monastery by emptying your heart. And by doing this, you make space in your heart to fit and accept and accommodate the other person, your brother or sister. This is unnecessary presupposition for the perichoresis, for the acceptance and harmonious existence with the other person. By emptying yourself, you will be able to listen to your brother. You will be open-minded to what he says, to love, obey, and apply everything he says, if he is your elder or your senior brother, without backtalk. Forgive me for bringing up monastic examples all the time, but they can be invaluable to us, especially in our days of widespread confusion. St. Cosmas the Aetolian taught that the light of monks are the angels and the light of the lay people are the monks and the nuns. In the life of St. Pachomios, we read about an exemplary monk by the name of Theodorus. Saint Theodorus the Sanctified, one of the saints of our church. At some point, God wanted to show him the meaning of true obedience, which is one of the highest virtues of the monastic ideal. One day, this Theodorus was crossing the Nile River on a public boat and observed this amazing exchange between a very difficult master and his slave. This truly eccentric, unreasonable, and generally harsh master began to look for some sort of an argument with his poor slave. And he began to announce to him, you know, this year I thought to plant a different type of plant in every groove or furrow of our farm. In one furrow, I will plant wheat. Next to it, we will plant barley. Next to it, oats, sesame. Now, for those who know anything about farming, this is not only crazy, but very difficult, and it would triple the work of the slave. The response of the slave. What a great idea. This is exactly what we need to do. So we can have all kinds of different foods from one farm. And the master continued. By the way, I also decided to irrigate our farm at night. Now, without moonlight, it would be extremely difficult to see at night without generators and electricity. The response of the slave. What a great idea. This way, we will avoid the heat of the day. This is the way to do things. The master continued to introduce all kinds of strange and unreasonable ideas. And every time the slave congratulated the master, for his wisdom and ingenuity. So we read in the life of St. Theodos that no matter what and what the, uh, the master tried and how hard he tried, he was incapable to upset, discourage, or sadden his slave. This is how God showed to St. Theodos the meaning of true obedience and the technique of harmonious coexistence. Now you may think, well, this is well, this was 17 centuries ago. This doesn't really happen today. This doesn't apply to us today. This does happen today. I met such beautiful elderly monks uh, in my years in Mount Athos only a few years ago. 
They were full of virtues and total obedience. One day I was expressing to Father Ephraim of Katunakia my admiration to the hermits, those monks who live on cliffs all by themselves, in the caves and the holes of the earth. I asked him, Elder, you have been here in a, in a desert for at least 60 years. I can imagine how much you may have seen and how much you heard from the hermits that abound in your area. Yes, indeed, uh, I did. I, I ran into many good hermits, no doubt. But there's a certain great virtue that only blossoms in the synobium, in the synobitic monastic brotherhoods. Now, what virtue is that, Elder? And he answered this question by telling me this story. Years ago, I was sent by my elder to the monastery of Vionisiu to get some table wine and some wine for Holy Communion. I took two empty flasks, about two gallons each, one to be filled with sweet black wine for the Divine Liturgy and the other uh, flask to be filled with white dry table wine. Now this monastery which is built on a huge rock, just like the Meteora. It's known for its wine production. Uh, the wine cellars are seven stories below, below the visitors' quarters. The wine is stored in huge barrels, barrels so huge, uh, such huge dimensions that one could possibly swim in them. The winekeeper was an elderly monk and to get to the wine, he needed to walk down seven stories with very steep and dark stairs. So Father Ephraim went to this monastery early in the morning and he placed his order and waited. After a while, the monk came up and said, Father Ephraim, we don't exactly have what you ordered. We have dry black wine and white sweet wine. Hmm. Okay, that's fine. Give me what you have. After he went down and came up, Father Ephraim changed his mind. Maybe I should only take the table wine because our elder doesn't really use dry wine for the divine liturgy. So please go down, empty the white wine so I can only take back the one flask of the table wine. Very well. The elderly monk descended another seven flights of stairs, emptied the one flask, and brought it back. Father Ephraim starts again. You know, what if my Yeranda doesn't like the black dry table wine? I will have to carry it all the way to our monastery up the mountain, and then, if he doesn't like it, I have to bring it back. Why don't you go down again, empty the other one too? He goes down all the way again, empties the second container of wine. And when the winekeeper returns, Father Ephraim is thinking out loud again. Hmm. Now how can I go back to my elder empty-handed? I think I'm going to take the wine back, and if he doesn't like it, we can always return it. Very well, Father, no problem. He goes down again and returns with the two filled containers. 
About 40 minutes before the departure of the boat, Father Ephraim says, I got it. Why don't you empty them again? We will leave the containers behind and we will send you a message to tell you exactly what we want. Great, no problem, Father. He went down and up the stairs seven, eight times for half a day. After he returned, Father Ephraim asked him, Now tell me the truth, Father. After all these trips, you must be quite upset with me. You must be a little angry with me, thinking that I deserve to wear some of this wine, right? Oh, no, not at all, Father Ephraim. Not a single thought like that. But why? Father Ephraim asked. This is a Cenobitic monastery. We are Cenobitic monks. We learn to do total obedience and to serve our brothers without a second thought. The Cenobitic monk does not simply learn to tolerate the other person. He does not think that my friend here is a little crazy. What can I do? Not like that. They don't think like some pious women, some church women, who tell their husbands over and over again, what can I do? You are my cross. This is not very nice to keep telling your husband that he is your cross. Your husband is strict and difficult, and you keep looking at him like a tyrant. And if you stay patient, you will go to paradise as a martyr. This is not the right way. You must have absolute love for the other person, and you must not think that good thing he's married to me because no one else would be able to put up with him. No, you must have nobility and rise above the weaknesses of your brother, and you will do whatever it takes to accommodate him. When you commit yourself to live with another person as husband and wife, if you want harmony and oneness, you will benefit much by following the example of the monks. You must check your selfishness at the door. You can't say, look, mister, I am a microbiologist and I don't do dishes. Or at least let me show you the scientific way of doing dishes. Or I am a doctor and I don't do vacuuming. No house can stand under these conditions. You know, my beloved children, uh, of course, I, I never got married. I'm a monk. But I remember such wonderful scenes from my monastic experience that I often think if the people in the world knew and apply these principles, how beautiful their marriages would become. I remember this wonderful elderly monk at St. Paul's Monastery. He was tall, snow white, with a beard down his belly and full of joy, Father Methodius. We were very young at the time. I think we were about your age, about 20 years old. And uh, we used to go to the all-night vigils there. And Father Methodius was running around trying to serve everyone, well, along with other monks as well. And he would bring us food and bring us drinks. And he was full of joy. And we would always ask him for things like, can you bring us a little more bread, a little more wine? And he would respond with much joy, with great joy. Or can we stay a couple more days? Oh, it'll be our honor, please, by all means. Or can we come back next weekend and bring 15 other people with us? Oh, it will be our great honor. It will be our joy to have you. And he meant it. 
He always said, as you like, as you please. We never heard him correct or dictate or do things this way. This is how we do things at this monastery. Never. We were so happy to be near him because he was full of true joy and peace because he was serving his brothers. The most difficult thing for him was to do his own will. He reached the depth of humility and totally forgot how to become upset or argue about anything. And speaking of arguments, I think I may have told you uh, the story about the two arguing monks in a desert. Well, I think I did, but we do have a lot of new students, so it would be good to repeat this story again. This is a great and a beautiful story which shows what happens when men becomes developed spiritually. These are simple things that we ought to learn from our home. We should not need the gospel or the saints to tell us how to live with people. God has instilled these things in our nature. We are social beings. Do we need Christ and his gospel to tell us how to live with another person? So we read in the Yerondikon, in the lives of the desert saints, the following story. Two ascetics lived together many, many years, 60, 70 years. And towards the end of their lives, uh, they, the one that was a little bit more comical than the other said, you know, Father, we've been living together an entire life and we never had an argument. I heard that people in the world argue all the time. Now, we should try to have at least one argument before we die. The other one, who was a little bit more simple, said, As you wish, Father. If you want, we can have an argument. Let's try to have one. But how do we do it? Do you, have, do you know how? The first one goes, I think I have an idea. We will take this water pot, we'll put it in the middle, and we'll say that this belongs to me. And then you will say, no, this belongs to me. And then I will say, no, this is mine. And then you'll say, no, it's mine. And before you know it, we'll have an argument. So the first one started, this water pot is mine. The second one goes, no, Father, I think it's mine. The first one repeats again, no, it's mine. And the second one says, oh, okay, if it's yours, just keep it. You can have it. So these two great ascetics died without being able to complete their first argument because they learned how to live with each other, to live with one another. If people do not learn some of these basics, they cannot even live on their own. I have seen people argue all by themselves. I saw someone kick his refrigerator without anyone being around him, around him anyone bothering him. Or they take the cell phone and slam it on the floor if they don't get their way or if something doesn't go right. My beloved children, the underlying cause of all these things is the great illness of egotism. They all sprout from the selfish will. Man wants to do things his way, his way or the highway. And he takes this ill attitude in his marriage and he center, centers everything around his highness, around his egotistical will. 
He wants people to bow down to his beliefs, opinions, and convictions. This is what I like. This is the right way. This is what I want uh, out of this life. And if you don't do things my way, I will never be happy. They finally get a child or two, if they get that far, with this kind of attitude. And then the saga continues. I want to raise my child this way. No, that's the wrong way. No, I don't agree with that. He's also my son. He's my child. My child, your child. I gave birth to him. And they turn their house upside down because they're both spiritual midgets. And everyone around them suffers and pays dearly for all this, for this spiritual infancy. In the absence of harmony, everything and everyone becomes suspect. Your mother is influencing you. Why is she coming around anyway? She has no business here, forgetting that she's not just her mother or his mother. You're looking at your mother-in-law as something foreign to you? Because you never really grasped the mystery that turned you into one flesh with your husband or your wife. You never understood or comprehended the power of this great mystery. If you became one flesh with your husband or wife, then how can you say your mother or his mother or her father? You are both one flesh, so her mother is also your mother. Most of this is forgotten after a year or two, and when everyone demands his individual rights and wants, his selfish desires to be met, then the marriage becomes dysfunctional, like most marriages today. Now you may think, so I got married to lose myself, to lose my identity? I got married so I can be turned into an animal? Not exactly. And speaking of animals, I just remember a funny story from a small girl who came to her first confession. She was about four or five years old, and she came for her first confession, and she says, I kick my mama. What? You kick your mom only? No, I also kick my dad. Uh, do you kick anyone else? Oh, yes, I also kick my brother. Well, congratulations. You're kicking your entire family around. So I asked, are people supposed to kick one another? The little girl was perplexed for a moment, and she said, well, I think not. I said, doesn't kicking belong to some animals that you know? Can you tell me of an animal that kicks others like you do? She said, yes, the donkey. And after she said this, she immediately turned red from shame, realizing that she was acting like a donkey. She said, okay, I will never do this again. All right, very well. So a few months later, she comes back and she says, oh, I don't kick my parents anymore. I, I now spit on them. Now, I, I was looking for an animal that spits, but we couldn't find uh, an animal that does that except men. So we stayed at that. As you can see, my beloved children, a lot of this has to do with our upbringing and how we are taught to communicate with the other person. Man does not lose his identity in the marriage. He needs to lose his stubbornness and egocentricity. 
the very thing that happens in true Orthodox monasticism. Initially, it may sound harsh and painful to deny yourself, to deny your will, to become everything to everyone, as St. Paul says, I will be everything to everyone, just to save a few. This sounds scary at first, scary and humiliating, a self-annihilation at best. But there is a paradoxical mystery at hand here. We must descend to Hades, put to death our egocentric desires, and only then we will begin to resurrect as a new being. Once we shed these selfish ambitions, then we will begin to discover our hidden men, our true self. You suddenly discover the health of your soul and your most genuine self, your most genuine expression and your true humanity. Man expresses himself correctly when he acquires the sacrificial spirit because sacrifice is the ultimate expression of love. Man is a loving creation in the image of his loving God, his loving creator. God is love, and as an image of God, man must also be imbued with love. One of the attributes of true Christian love is to radiate, reach out, and be surrendered to the other person, to the neighbor. This is what the most genuine of all men did for us. He emptied himself, he surrendered his will to his Father, and he became man for all of us. Christ did not come as God to announce, look here, I am your God, and I'm going to stay at that very high mountain. I'm going to stay there for a while, and if you want, you can climb this mountain to find me. No, he lowered himself, he emptied himself, he hid his divinity, he became 100% men, just like all of us, to meet us at our wretchedness. He wanted to meet us and converse with us on our level. He finally expressed the depth of his love by dying for us. Not simply dying, but suffering excruciating torture. He could have died in a more civil manner with a more dignified death. Why did he choose to be betrayed, ridiculed, spat upon, flogged, and hung on a cross? He did all these things to show his immense love for men and to move the calloused hearts of men with his sacrifice. He did not try to convert us or reach us with the splendor of his divinity or his power or his miracles. He did not try to compel us like a dynast or like the God of the false prophet Muhammad. You would change or else. This would be strangling our God-given freedom, our free will, which is a precious attribute of God's image in men. He dealt with us with complete freedom. He incarnated, he hid his, his divinity, he emptied himself, he died for us, and he has left us completely free to accept him or deny him. This is what's expected from someone who loves another person. You don't have the right to say to the other person, I love you, I can't live without you, and if you don't marry me, I will commit suicide, or I will kill you and kill myself so no one else can have us. This is not love. These are thoughts of people who belong 
to the psychiatric word, to the worst of psychopaths. If you truly love the other person, you sacrifice yourself for him or her without daring to ask or demand anything in return. From the moment, my young friends, you begin to demand things from the other person, from the person that you think you love, you must know that you are still in a state of illness. If we love and demand, this is not genuine love. This is love of self, a love that seeks its own. It is full of poison. True love is to love the other person unselfishly with a love that does not seek its own. To love unconditionally without expecting anything in return. Do not even expect to be loved back. You must not feel the need to be loved back. You must be absolutely content by giving the opportunity to exercise your love for this person next to you. This is the love that overcomes all obstacles. This is the love that overcomes the world. Unfortunately, we have filled our hearts with the precepts, concepts, and illnesses of this world and ignore the true medicine of the traditional Orthodox Gospel of Christ. So, of course, we will offer our opinion to our children or friends. But what kind of opinion are we going to offer anyway, since these things are usually subjective? If she truly loves this person to her or to him, that person is the most beautiful man or woman in the world. Now, you might be repulsed by your daughter's choice. You might think she can do better. But to her, the one she is attracted to, the one she has fallen in love with is the best looking man in the world. I remember a conversation at the steps of a neighbor's house years ago when, you know, some women were commenting about the looks of some movie star and uh, the usual gossip. And uh, this 70 year old woman commented, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't know anyone better looking than my husband. Now, she said this in such a serious manner that I will never forget it. I was a teenager then, and it made such a huge impression on me. This attraction, this relationship is so powerful that even from the first book of the Bible, we are told that this relationship is much stronger than blood relationships. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. There's no room for anyone else between the relationship of these two people. They are one flesh. This is the result of marriage. And now we will begin to go over some points from the service of the betrothal. It would be good to bring service booklets here for you next time so all of you can follow along. Now, our Orthodox services always start with the blessing of God. Blessed is our God always, not ever into the ages of ages, and so on. And then the deacon starts a number of prayers or petitions for the peace of the world, the peace of the church, for this house of God, where the mystery is going to take place, for the presiding bishop, priests, and deacons. And then the prayers center around the two who are being betrothed. For the servant of God, George, and the servant of God, Irene, let us pray to the Lord. 
for the servant of God name and the servant of God name who now pledge themselves to one another and for their salvation let us pray to the Lord now do you remember what God said after he created Eve what what he repented no no Pandelitza who told you that he, he didn't have any second thoughts now who told you this no God said I will make Adam a helper now, a helper does not mean uh, a molly maid or a merry maid, a servant to wash his dishes and pick up his laundry, but a helper to mainly assist him in his salvation. Through the proper communion with the other person, he would enhance his communion with God to go from the image to the likeness of God. This is the purpose of the helper and the existence of these two people. And our existence and our relationship and our betrothal and marriage are the means to our salvation. Our entire life, including our marriage, is incorporated within our eternal relationship with God. For this reason, we are called to progressively transcend all these earthly dimensions at some point, including our marriage, even the marital relations. And we are called to transcend, to rise above all these things without putting them down or move away from them unless both are ready to do so. So we will work with all these, keeping our priorities straight so they can function harmoniously in our soul. After these petitions, we have prayers and petitions for this earthly life of the people. We pray for God to give them children. So mankind can continue because God said, let them increase and multiply. And even though this is not the main purpose of marriage, childbearing is also incorporated in the journey of salvation and the overall movement of men towards God. That he sent down upon them love perfect and peaceful, and give them his protection. Let us pray to the Lord. So we ask and beseech God to send to these two young people perfect love. Now, what is this perfect love? Someone can rightfully ask, does an absolute love belong to God alone? This perfect love reminds us of the words of Christ. Perfect love is when one lays down his life for his brother, his friend, his neighbor, his spouse. It is the perfect love of self-sacrifice. This is the love that does not seek its own. It is the true and correct love that moves and passes through God, which can only be achieved through the personal ascetical struggle. It is love refined and purified from selfish passions. That's why abstinence, self-control, purity, and virginity are indispensable before marriage. When young people pass through this arena of self-control and abstinence and they attempt to love God more so than their desires, then they will be in position to transfer this love into their marriage and the other person. The fruits of self-control and abstinence are invaluable because when a young person develops empirical knowledge of the love and presence of God, then the foundation of marriage is built on solid rock. So perfect love is the love that always includes God. We don't exclude God because we want away from home 
We don't exclude God because we are college students. We certainly don't forget God because we fell in love and are about to get married. We don't diminish our relationship with God because we found a future wife or a future husband. We increase it. We thank God for everything. We thank and eulogize God for the presence of this wonderful person in our life. We give thanks for everything. I will use a simple example. We should do this daily. We gather at the table to eat. A church-going person will do his prayers before eating, regardless of how delicious or how simple or detestable even the meal may be. He uses this opportunity to pray to God. He eats, and when he's finished, he doesn't just say, good job, honey, or uh, I am stuffed, but he prays a prayer of thanksgiving, and he asks Christ for heavenly things, because man does not live with bread alone. We thank you, Christ our God, for you have filled us with your earthly goods. Very nice. We thank Christ our Creator for providing us with our daily sustenance. Now, if the prayer would stop here, then it would not differ much from the prayers of the ancient Greeks to Zeus and Apollo and Athena. But we continue to pray, and we ask Christ not to deprive us from his heavenly kingdom. We are not content and stuck on earthly goods, but having received these, now we rise ourselves above them. We are in constant memory of our God-given purpose, which is the kingdom of God. Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given unto us. So don't deprive us your heavenly kingdom. But as you, our Savior, came among your disciples and gave them peace, likewise come in our midst and save us. So we use the material enjoyment of our meal and we offer glory to God. We use our marriage and the presence of the other gender, our future spouse or present spouse, not for consumption and pleasure, but for the glory of God. Thank you, Christ Lord, for providing me with a good person so we can struggle together in our journey to your likeness. This prayer gives the person next to us a sacred dimension, a holy purpose. We don't look at the person lustfully or carnally. They are not one of our possessions. They are not something to be conquered. They are a human being, an image of this living God. We look at our spouse as sizigos. Sizigi means to be yoked together. We are yoked together with the yoke of Christ. So we can plow through the field of this life and produce seeds and fruits worthy of the kingdom of God. So we are thankful to God because the providence of our God entrusted us with this person to nurture, to love and uphold in sickness and in health. And we incorporate this love in our overall relationship with God. It is very tragic, my beloved young people, for someone to see some newlyweds who had a very good relationship with the church and with God up to their marriage. And after their honeymoon, they forget all about God and his church. They stop coming to the church. And we're talking about people who were teaching Sunday school and they were very involved in the activities of the church. They remind us of some people who run to the table 
They dive into their plate. They stuff themselves without any concern or even a simple reference to God. This is certainly not good. We often witness another bad symptom of imbalance in the marriage. To have the other person totally absorbed and extinguish the personality of the other person. The strong personality controls every movement of the other person. This is not perfect love. Perfect love respects and preserves the personality of the other person. You are created in the image of the Holy Trinity. And the Trinity is a union of three persons in a perfect communion of love. The three persons are not confused. They are not neutralized by the presence of the others. Each person maintains his personal attributes. They maintain their personal existence in a communion of harmonious love. Likewise, in your marriage, you cannot demand from the other person to become your shadow, to become smoke, to become totally absorbed by you. This is an illness. Now, this can take place inadvertently, of course, because some people have a very strong personality by nature. But this needs to be realized early on and make the necessary adjustments to permit the other person to live and exist and breathe. Make it a point to ask for the other person's opinions, whether they offer it or not. Keep them included in your decision-making process, in your finances. Sometimes couples come to see me here at the metropolis and they start to speak. And who do you think does most of the talking? That's right, Eleni said it here in front of me. The woman usually starts to speak. And the poor man who's extinct by the wife's absorption will repeat the last syllable of his wife's sentence. She will say 10 things and he will repeat her last word in complete agreement. He is inexistent, like he was liquefied in a kitchen blender or something. He lost his personality. He's absorbed. The opposite can take place as well when the man is the strong personality. This has nothing to do with the perfect love of our marriage, as we read in the service manual. This is not the way to be. Many men dream up the idea to find a young woman and mold her according to their image, train her to serve their every need and desire. These are not good things. On a similar note, I remember some uh, older gentleman who was searching for a spiritual father to confess for the first time, and he came all the way to the Holy Mountain. And he announced to us that I came here to find a very old a semi-blind spiritual elder so I can confess my sins. And my elder added, uh -huh. uh, old, uh, semi-blind, and it would be much better if he was deaf too so you could confess your sins in total confidence. So you are looking to find a person to marry and your presupposition is to put her or him in your kitchen blender and have her come out a molly maid or a merry maid to serve the master's wishes? Don't you understand that with this kind of mindset, you will either destroy the other person, or after a few years, she or he will need Prozac or Valium or major antidepressants, or you will argue and fight every day 
sowing the miserable fruits of your immaturity? This is not the proper climate for a successful marriage. Your intentions should not be to change the other person according to your moods and likeness, but sacrificial love, perfect love means to change yourself to facilitate the weaknesses of the other person. Love does not seek its own. You will do whatever it takes to accommodate the other person without sinning, of course. Marriage is not different from monasticism in this respect, in the sense that we must give up our own will to help the other person. This is the way to meekness and humility. Years ago, when I was at Mount Athos, a young man came to uh, Elder Ephraim of Katunakia, a pillar of prayer and holiness, a true giant of the Holy Spirit. This young man was well known worldwide as a great scientist with several PhDs, master's degrees, etc. He came to the mountain to become a monk, and he was searching to find the proper monastery, a monastery of his liking. Now, what monastery would not want to have this brilliant young man join their brotherhood? He spoke seven languages. He was a professor at several universities. He was a medical doctor, a truly an amazing person. He was interested to start his monastic life at Katunakia because he heard of the great gifts of the elder. So he came to see the elder, and I happened to be present that day, and I overheard the conversation. Elder, I came here to become a monk, and I would like to join your brotherhood, and I hope that uh, you, know, you will accommodate me and help me along and comfort me in the years to come. The elder told him, listen to me, my son, you made a big mistake from the beginning. I am not here to comfort and accommodate you, but you will conform to our brotherhood so you can accommodate and comfort us. Otherwise, there is no place here for you. The elder was cut and dry. So my good children, when we are ready to espouse another person, we don't start with a presupposition to mold the other person. This is the wrong basis. This is not love, but arrogance, and it will cost dearly to all those around you, including yourself, of course. You are trying to facilitate yourself. You are self-serving. You are not leasing an automobile here to see how far the seats uh, fall down and how many speakers it has and cruise control and self-heating seats and labar seats and sunroof. This is not the way to look at your future spouse. You're not looking for a spouse to shape and mold so you can live at a zone of perpetual comfort. Love does not seek its own. From the moment you tell the other person, I will love you as long as, and you come up with a list of your likes, and your expectations, you're exposing your Procrustean orientation, a demonic figure of the ancient Greek mythology who was named Procrustes. He had an inn, according to mythology, uh, for overnight guests. He had one size bed, and he would ask his guests to lay down. If their feet were too long, he would cut the victim's Feet to match the size of the bed. If the victim was too short, then he would stretch their bodies with some machines 
to become exactly the size of the bed. This was the infamous Procrustean bed. This Procrustean mentality needs to stop at the door. You cannot bring this kind of thing into your marriage. The proper basis is set when you are ready to give yourself to the other person and not to expect the other person to surrender to your demands. Do we have the bravery and the nobility to do this? If we truly love and we are people of the Christian freedom, then we have nothing to fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, according to St. John the Evangelist. Perfect love does not envy, has nothing to fear, does not doubt the other person. Why are you panicking? Why are you asking questions like, why, why are you late? Who are you talking to? Who was that on the phone? Why did you smile at that person? Why are you looking at her? These sicknesses are full of fear and envy and jealousy, insecurity. But insecurity comes from the lack of love. You don't know how to love. You don't have the courage to love the other person without expecting anything in return. To love that person perfectly without any conditions or terms, without any anxieties. She's going to love you like you love her. Do not be afraid. Phobias and insecurities show absence of love. The person who fears does not yet know how to love. St. Anthony the Great expressed this beautifully when he said, I no longer fear God, but I love him. If you truly love your wife, you will not be afraid. What if and what if and what if? No matter what happens, you will be by her side. You will not feel hurt or betrayed or humiliated. What is the big deal? In the journey of life, people have failures, difficulties, falls, sins, slip-ups. If your father, your daughter, your mother, your teacher, your doctor makes a mistake, a sin, are they instantly erased from your life? And now you're ready to judge and condemn your husband or your wife because of a slip or a fall or even a sin? This one occurrence outweighs years of being together and raising children? This will never take place if the newlyweds energize this perfect love that the deacon is blessing them with here at this petition of the betrothal. When we energize this love which comes down from God, only then we will live this wonderful freedom in our relationship. This perfect love can only be given through the sacraments of the church. I know it's not easy. And it is not human love. Human loves will only fail us most of the time. It is human love, yes, but it's permeated and sanctified with the grace of God. The one who loves God lives a certain fullness and does not expect all his voids to be filled by the other person. He does not absolutize the other person. Even if he loses the other person, whether they died or whether they took off or abandoned the home, he does not despair. He is not suicidal or in need of strong antidepressants. And this because he did not place his entire existence on this one finite person. When a person is filled with the love of God, only then he can transfer genuine love to the other person. The love of God is his fortress and his staff. No matter what life brings, bankruptcies, death, accidents, dismemberments, illnesses, and all kinds of tragedy to his wife or children. No matter what happens, he will not be paralyzed, his heart will not be troubled. 
the Christian heart does not build on finite things, on things that have an expiration date. If your wife becomes everything to you, and we often hear this statement in movies, uh, oh, you're everything to me. But if she's everything to you, then you deserve to be miserable because this woman comes with an expiration date. At some point, she will stop to exist. If she doesn't leave you before then, now how can you cope after this? Your loss would be unbearable because you built your entire life around this one finite human being. How can you place absolute hope on things that are corrupt, finite, and temporal? You fail to understand that the basis of our first priority is our relationship with God. And when you place and build your foundation on the endless, infinite, never-failing love of God, then you are properly grounded. You are anchored in God, and the wind and the sea waves will not capsize your boat. You will not be lost. Even if your wife or husband betrays you, leaves you, or separates from you, you will not despair. Of course, you will be hurt. You will cry and suffer, but you will not act like you lost your entire world. The entire world is not lost. A bad relationship is lost. Because when we allow ourselves to develop these sick feelings, we suffocate the other person. They cannot handle this obsessive attachment. We become like the mama bear that wishes to express her love to her little one with a full strength bear hug. She wants to show her full dose of love and she crushes every one of the baby's bones. Imagine a 700 pound grizzly squeezing her cubs with her full strength. This is not the proper way to show one's love. You love your new husband or wife, but give them some breathing room. Do not demand and make it your purpose to make them love you as much as you love them. They may not be able to reciprocate or handle all your love at this point, or at least all your insecurities. These are unhealthy conditions that need to be healed before we can have stability in our lives. No one will be able to live with you if you are in a constant need of attention and idolizing. It is not possible in today's day and age. Even if you meet a strong person and they put up with you for a number of years, at some point they will have a problem. You are building on a weak subfloor and this termite of yours will eventually eat away the wooden foundation of your marriage. Love can only be developed in freedom. You must let the other person love you freely and vice versa. And that love will grow naturally without compulsion and ultimatums. If you truly love, you are not afraid. You don't feel insecure and you don't demand things from your spouse that he or she cannot give you. Sometimes we suffocate the other person with an overbearing love. What kind of love is this? Let's say the husband comes home an hour late and you start the questions. Where were you? And why are you always late? You're doing this on purpose. You don't love your home. You love the office better. This type of nagging has nothing to do with love, but it is a clear indication that we have failed to love the other person in a healthy Christian manner. 
It is the result of our failure to discover the love of God, which acts as the filtration system that rids of the soul and heart with all these illnesses and teaches us to love the other person with a love that provides oxygen and joy and nurture, a love that does not seek its own. Anidioteli agapi, unselfish love. And again, we repeat the words of the deacon, that he send down upon them a love perfect and peaceful and give them his protection. Let us pray to the Lord. Peaceful here, my young friends, does not mean a blissful cohabitation day after day to live happily ever after. As you may have read in fictional love stories, uh, they always tell you that they lived happily ever after. But here, we're talking about the peace of God. The church talks about maintaining the peace of Christ regardless what kind of predicaments we may be facing. Life is not always a calm sea. It can be, and that's wonderful, but the truth is that we will face many difficulties, difficulties of many sorts. Peace is not the absence of turmoil, fights, and battles, but the presence of God. When God is present in our heart, then we will have peace regardless of what happens outside. When the grace of God is absent, then we cannot have lasting peace. Okay, we may not be killing each other, but there's a certain emptiness, a heavy dark cloud hanging over us, a thick air that can be cut with a knife. There is no peace because you left Christ outside of your home. You chose to base your marriage on your own capabilities and imaginations, and you are faced with daily friction. When Christ is present in a home, then the couple can be faced with great challenges, tragedies, or mishaps, but there is internal peace. When we say peace, we don't mean some kind of nirvana or indifference or callousness. I suffer. I hurt. I'm in pain. I cry. But all these things do not extract my inner peace. They don't eliminate my relationship and my trust in God. Christ is our lasting peace. Christ himself is our peace. For us, peace is not an idea. It's not some abstract feeling or something that we can momentarily feel by listening to audio recordings of sea waves or birds singing. Peace is not some temporary emotion. Lasting peace is achieved by the presence of Christ in our heart. The same holds true about our joy and Joy is not an emotion. Christ is our joy. Joy and peace are called fruits of the Holy Spirit by St. Paul. Love, joy, peace are some of the highest fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love is not a simple emotion. Christ is our love, our joy, our peace. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Christ is everything to us, not some finite person. Christ means the world to us, not some creature with an expiration date. Love, joy, peace, and everything else is developed and incorporated within our journey towards God. That he sent down upon them a love perfect and peaceful and give them his protection. Let us pray to the Lord. Now, we will need God's protection in this journey along with our children, if God blesses us with them. 
and we will need his protection to stay on the right path and preserve our relationships with God. My dear students, we need to stop at this point, and I am here to tell you that if our Christians understand correctly the words of our church and what it means to be married, if we truly comprehend all these words, we will have exemplary and thrice-blessed marriages. As I mentioned earlier, we are facing a terrible crisis today, a true tragedy, 300 divorces out of 800 marriages here in Limassol. This would be unimaginable even a few decades ago. Now, what went wrong? And here we thought that all these freedoms, uh, uh, all these sexual freedoms and the sexual revolution, all these things that we espouse from the West, all these premarital relations and liberalities, all these things have not improved the institution of marriage, but on the contrary, they have destroyed nearly half of the marriages. This clearly shows that all these premarital relations and sexual freedoms and getting to know each other intimately do not give us stable marriages. What is missing today is the meaning, the purpose. A man who understands that everything in his life is his relationship with God then this man will patiently endure everything in his marriage. He will do everything possible to support his spouse. And he'll do this through thick and thin. Unfortunately, in this age of secularism, most of our couples are so preoccupied and numb by the non-essentials, the video cameras, flower girls, organs, wedding dresses, limousines, and receptions, that there's hardly any energy left to focus and absorb all these grace-filled prayers, which most priests nowadays read so fast or even skip because their guests and their secular masters have order to keep the sacrament under 40 minutes or less. And then the photographer's service will take two to three hours in parks and rose gardens and who knows what else. The mystery passed mostly unnoticed. Our loving God has given us his gifts and grace, but they've remained inactive and unused, like some of the boxes of our wedding gifts that may remain unopened or at least unused for a number of years. Of course, we all pay dearly for having reduced God's sacraments into some secular functions, and we all need to repent deeply for this. We are now out of time, and we will answer some of your questions at a separate session. Let us now pray and have you go back to your homes. Until next time, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.